Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. This is animator Ron Husband, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, as well as theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and loose cannon. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at dave at skullrockpodcast.com. Al John, how are you today? Doing well. Allergies once again. One, Al John zero. <laughs> hey, listen, while you were in Nashville experiencing 80, 85 degree weather, uh-huh. I was out here in Los Angeles in the low 30s and it snowed and hailed at my house here in Los Angeles. What's up? And if that isn't a sign of the world ending, I don't know what is. I don't know either. It's so weird. Cats, dogs <laughs> living together, mass hysteria. There you go. It's it's craziness. Hey, uh, we've got a great show today. We've got animator Bert Klein um, in the house here. Um, And we're going to talk with him. He's terrific. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We also got a couple of uh, comments uh, sent through to us. Uh, One of them was uh, regarding, actually, both of them are really regarding uh, our interviews with Ron Husband this month. And uh, one of the comments was, I didn't know about this Skull Rock interview. Thanks for the heads up. Well, come on, people. Bookmark this. You got to get with the program. We've got a new show every week. Yes. Yes. Epic shows. and then I got another comment uh, from iDog Cow. Um, <laughs> wow, you weren't. No, seriously. It says, wow, you weren't kidding when you said his drawings were amazing because I had posted a picture of Ron with one of his pen and ink drawings. Uh, thanks, as always, for bringing us the coolest people to our attention. There are so many talented people involved with Disney, and I'm only learning about them via your podcast. Oh, awesome. That is exactly right, my friends. And I'm glad you're listening to our show. Edutainment, you have it. It's edutainment. You know, we actually had another comment on Facebook and it's from a longtime friend, Lee Beatons, who's a big Disney fan and from the great white North. And he said, 
what what about Floyd? And it wasn't Floyd the first. And I said, well, I said, yeah, but he, it, it's he uh, he is kind of it, you know because but 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 as you said in uh, in the podcast that the term animator actually is an earned title at Disney. It really is. And you know something? I saw a couple other comments on Facebook about that, and I responded to them because really this is about understanding all the different disciplines at Disney, right? And so, you know, we were very clear in saying Floyd Norman was the first black artist to work at the Walt Disney Studios, okay? He was the first black artist in the animation department back in the 1950s, and Floyd was doing assistant work, and uh, he was in the animation department, but he never rose to animator because he moved into the story department. That's right. Okay? So you could actually say Floyd was the first uh, black story artist as well. This is true. Uh, You know, but Ron Husband is the first black animator at Walt Disney Animation Studios. And he earned that title by doing over a hundred feet of animation. And that back in those days, that's what you had to do. You had to do a hundred film feet of animation uh, that was accepted and cut into the film to earn that credit as an animator, as a Disney animator. That's right. I think Floyd Norman had, you know, who's also been on the Skull Rock podcast, by the way, go back in the show archives and check out our interview with Floyd, uh, Disney legend. But Floyd Norman had done some in-betweens as as far as I know, but didn't do, didn't complete a hundred feet of that to earn the title of animator. So, you know, I mean, there are those technicalities there, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he continues to, to be a great artist and did so much to contribute in terms of story, yeah. storyboarding and, and illustration for Disney. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, this isn't taking anything away from Floyd. Floyd knows this, yeah. you know, and Floyd is a Disney legend and is the first black, uh, black artist to work at, uh, the Walt Disney animation Studios. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I think it was just really interesting as we educate people, as we do every every week, you know, the, the company has its terms. Uh, it's not just a company term. I think it was an industry accepted term, too. So whether you worked for Filmation or you worked for Hanna-Barbera or Warner Brothers, you had to complete 100 feet. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm going to say this because um, the, this is a common mistake that happens out in the world, uh, especially, obviously, with people who are not affiliated or have worked at Disney. Right. Everybody thinks that if you work on an animated film, you're a Disney animator. Right. And that that is not the case. There's so many different disciplines from, you know, story artists and writers to um, uh, uh, visual development uh, artists. You've got character designers. You've got uh, cleanup artists. You've got in-betweeners, assistants, breakdown artists. You've got animators. You've got, you know, now with CG, there's so many others, uh, other categories. Categories, you know, from rigging uh, to skinning to, you know, uh, look development, all of those things. Uh, and they're all specialties and they're all disciplines. And so when you look at it, you know, there's background artists, layout artists, 3D visualization, I visual, mean, so, visual effects. <laughs> yeah, visual effects. There's just so many different categories. Um, and I think people over the years just have this catch all like, 
like, you know, uh, if you work in, on a Disney animated film, you're an animator. And that's not the case. Um, It's just like when, you know, over the years you tell somebody you work at Disney and they ask you what ride you operate down at Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I find that, I find that's the case in a lot of different, um, you know, work that, that people do. It's like, Oh, you, you work for Gibson guitar company. Oh, that's great. So, you know, do you build, you know, did you build a guitar? And it's like, I, I am in research and development. So while I can build guitars, I don't actually hand build the guitars myself. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting thing, but that's what we do on the show. We educate the fans out there and, uh, and it brings insight every week. I learn something new on this show and, uh, you know, Dave and, and our guests, they always, uh, you know, sprinkle that knowledge to us our you know, the, the fans out there. So thank you for that. Oh, wait, you work at Gibson Guitars? They only make Les Pauls, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. We only make Les Pauls. Uh, we, you know, yeah. Orange, Star, Orange Starburst Les Orange Paul. Starburst That's Les Paul. It. That's, right? it. That's, That's it. the one guitar you guys make. <laughs> That's the one guitar. Yeah, exactly. Just ask the Beatles, you know? <laughs> but anyway. Uh, well, those keep those questions coming. We love the questions over there at the email. Al John or Dave at com or our Instagram. Please go ahead and send us those emails now i think uh before we get into burt klein i think we can go ahead and talk about what is going on in terms of our streaming this week wait a second oh no wait did i jump the gun again no no i thought you were going to no 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 that's our that's our streaming stinger (laughs) all right there we go so speaking of crazy i heard you saw a movie about a crazy bear you know, I did go see Cocaine Bear. That's awesome. And I, and I have to tell you, I I kind of I kind of laughed at this one. You know, there wasn't a lot playing this weekend at the theaters <laughs> because I'd seen most of it. So I I went with my friend Rick to see it. Oh and yeah, Rick did I, fall asleep what, this time. Here's what I'll say. When I walked in the house and Nancy said, "What'd you think of the movie?" I said, "It was so bad, it was good." Oh, that's awesome. How's that? I love um, it. You know something? I, I have to tell you, Al John, there are so many great actors in this movie. Uh, it, it's really kind of surprising, you know, because uh, I, I honestly, um, it's uh, it, they they took a thin premise. OK, and here it is. After a 500-pound black bear consumes a significant amount of cocaine and embarks on a drug-fueled rampage, an eccentric gathering of cops, criminals, tourists, and teenagers assemble in a Georgia forest. That's your premise. Right. And and it's it's one of these ripped from the uh, from the headlines uh, um, stories, because this actually happened back in the early 70s. Okay, And and by the way, it's it's got an interesting cast of people because Kerry Russell, you know, from the Americans. Yes. uh, She's in it. Margot Martindale. Do you know Margot Martindale? The name is familiar. Yeah. She she was in uh, Justified. She's been in tons of stuff. She's really a terrific actress. She she plays a park ranger. She's in this. Uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson from um, 
Oh, what was the uh, ABC show? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm locked out of my IMDb. I'm locked out of everything today. <laughs> You're locked out. He's from Modern Family. From oh, yes, Modern yes. Family. That was on uh, ABC, right? Yes. Uh, he's in the show. Um, and, and by the way, this is the last film, apparently, for Ray Liotta before he passed away. Oh, that's right. Yes. You yes, know? yes. So, so I, you know, look, if you go in with no expectations, watch this movie because there's a lot of laughs, but you know, you're going to be laughing at one moment and then, you know, a breath away from that, you're going, Oh my gosh, what the hell? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because, because there's plenty of, there's plenty of people getting ripped apart by a bear. Awesome. You know, and there's, there's plenty of body parts being tossed about. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, I did see Ant Man. Yes. Uh, Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Quantum Mania. Yes. Uh, I saw that uh, in IMAX, and I got to tell you, um, I thought the movie was just okay. Yes. I mean, it was enjoyable. It's a visual delight, obviously. Um, All the superhero stuff. Um, Paul Rudd is such a likable actor. I mean, his presence (laughs) on screen is just fabulous. Yes. You know, and he doesn't really, you know, he projects. He just doesn't take himself seriously, which is one of the charming things about him, you know. And I have to say, I enjoyed the movie. I didn't think it was one of best, uh, the, the one of the best Marvel films by any stretch, but I enjoyed it, you know, and Michelle Pfeiffer's in it. Bill Murray has an appearance in it. Um, Jonathan Majors is the villain, uh, plays Kang the Conqueror. Yes. He, he's really a presence on screen, yeah. and I'm looking forward to seeing him in Creed 3. Same. Yeah, I mean, he's really terrific. So I would say, look, and, and by the way, Michael Douglas, love Michael Douglas. He, he, you know, the cast. He just keeps he just keeps getting better. The cast can do no wrong, um, in my opinion, because I also saw um, Quantumania as well. Uh, I thought Jonathan Majors was amazing. But um, I'll, I'll let you finish your thing before I, I get into my thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah, so you know, look, I uh, I just thought um, this was a, a, a visually. I'm glad I saw it on on an IMAX screen, yeah. uh, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't it it wasn't the best Marvel movie. Oh, okay. So since you're talking about it, I feel like this is also in the middle of the pack for me for Marvel, which is which yeah. is okay. But I think what Marvel, what we're seeing in terms of content on the Disney Plus shows as well as Marvel Studios films and theaters is an effect of the pandemic. And with the pandemic, there's a lot of stuff that, that happened. And I think that, um, so that there is the, the pandemic, you know, disjunctiveness of it all. There's some of it that's loose and you can blame writing. You can blame producing. You can blame Kevin Feige about that for not having quite the best focus on certain aspects of the films that we're seeing or the projects that we're seeing. So there's, there's that maybe the writing, maybe a bunch of different things with the pandemic, having to do workarounds and shoot arounds and things of that nature for some of this stuff that's, you know, was produced during the pandemic. But I think um, it's difficult as 
the Marvel universe expands and things build upon things and you're trying to set certain things up that um, it's, it's getting really difficult. Um, it's just getting really difficult to, to service the MCU. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, maybe it's maybe it's getting so big, you know, it's becoming convoluted. I don't know. But I think they need to I, service. You know they need to focus. They they really need to focus on yeah. on some things and let some other story threads be very very small threads. But because I find that this movie, because it services so many A list performers, that people like Evangeline Lilly, who plays the Wasp or Michael Douglas, Hank Pym kind of get pushed aside a little bit. Um, and then I saw myself going, okay, I want to see more Paul Rudd, but I see Michelle Pfeiffer who is amazing yeah. uh, with Jonathan majors. But I think they could have did things a little bit more to, to, if you're going to have a, a single protagonist and an antagonist kind of come together where the roads meet and then there's an impasse between the two, um, I, I think you could have made that a little bit more effective there um, because I think Michelle Pfeiffer, I mean, this whole thing is about Michelle Pfeiffer coming back to the quantum realm realm and being sought after by her ex boyfriend, if you will, scientist. I don't want to spoil it too much, but right. Right. Uh, of Kang, or I'm sorry, of, of Bill Murray and then being hunted by Jonathan majors King. Um, so yeah, there's a little convoluted there. I mean, with the sidekick of Corey Stoll. Oh yes, absolutely. Which is hilarious, by the way. You I, like- I, I, I thought it was funny as as could be. Oh, there's so many, so many stuff there. Uh, <laughs> as a longtime comic book fan, I just laughed because of the way they they kind of projected the whole. Um, oh, what is it? The Modoc um, giant head. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know. It's... Clearly in there for comedic comedic uh, stuff, but in the comics, Modoc is a really he's a he just looks odd. He's just bizarre, but uh, it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can pay the fan service and make him look like the comics, which they did. Uh, but yeah. then you also sit back and laugh at how ridiculous this is. But then again, it is the quantum realm. So things are ridiculous in this quantum realm, but I do understand the whole Alice in Wonderland meets Star Wars, you know, kind of situation that they're in down there. Yeah. You know, so it, was it, it, it was enjoyable. And as always with a Marvel film, you got to see it on a big screen. So I'd encourage people to go see it on a big screen. That's yes. that, that's where I'll leave it. Or at the drive-in. I might actually see it again in a double feature. You know? All right. It'll be, it'll be nice. But uh, now, anyway, go ahead. I, I was going to say on a little screen, I did watch uh, a show called, CB Strike. Okay. And this is based on the best selling novels by Robert Galbraith. Do you know who that is? Mm-mm. AKA JK Rawlings. Is that right? Yeah, JK Rowling. Uh, so this is uh, about a detective. Tom Burke stars as private detective Cameron Strike a former war veteran now working out of a cramped London office together with his assistant, Robin Alcott Cameron tackles cases that have so far baffled the police though struggling with the psychological and physical toll that combat have wrought on him. Cameron is well-equipped to delve into complex conundrums. Thanks to his background as a special investigation branch investigator. Huh. 
So this is a this is a television series. Uh, I watched it uh, on HBO Max. Uh, right. It's also available on Hulu uh, and Amazon Prime. Uh, and I actually really enjoyed this. I have to say Tom Burke and Holiday Granger, who plays Robin Ellicott, uh, they're, they're terrific together. There's a good chemistry between them. And, you know, that's a big part of when you're watching these shows, if there's a chemistry between these actors, 100%, well, you that know, looks very and, uh, you know, it's shot mostly in London, but they do, do go outside of London, uh, and I, um, I like this show. I really did. And, uh, you know, me, I like these detective shows. So I'm always seeking out these detective shows. Yeah. Uh, and so this was a good one. Uh, so I highly recommend it. CB strike. If you nice. get a chance, check it out. They're on their third season. Uh, and I, I also watched a show, um, called, uh, the guilty. And I found this on BritBox and, you know, which I, I watch BritBox through uh, Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, this is one of those limited series. Um, and I'll give you the synopsis. Relationships are tested when a child goes missing in this drama that takes place in two timelines. 2008, when the child first disappears, and 2013. In the hours following an annual neighborhood barbecue during which alcohol consumption caused tempers to flare, young Colum Reed went missing. The neighborhood is uh, is changed forever after that fateful night, especially when the nightmare resumes on the eve of the fifth anniversary of the disappearance of uh, as the boy's body is found buried just yards yards away from the family's home. A new new investigation begins, led by D.C. Maggie Brand, who was pregnant when Colum went went missing and had to step down from the original investigation due to debilitating morning sickness. She leaves no stone unturned in her attempt to discover what happened to Colum, even risking her own happy family life with husband Jed and young son, Sam. So this is, this was a three part, um, uh, you know, limited series. Uh, And I have to say, really enjoyed this one lots of twists and turns you really aren't sure who did what until the the last part and uh you know i like these limited series because you know they tie everything up in three or four episodes you know it's right. like it's like watching a three or four hour movie yes you know right and uh and again great production value Terrific cast, you know, uh, Tamison Greg Craig is DC Maggie Brand. She's a very familiar British actress. Darren Boyd uh, plays Daniel Reed, the father. Um, it's just got a, a really terrific cast of uh, British actors in it. And I would recommend this as well. If you get a chance, take a look at it. I like it. I like it, Dave. Well, good right. deal. Well, for me, uh, I continue on my my quest with Picard on Paramount Plus. And this week, we have another cast member making its appearance on uh, from the Next Generation onto the the story of Picard as it unfolds. So, definitely, uh, if you're a Star Trek fan or just a casual Star Trek fan, I think you're going to love it uh, just because of the stories and you get to see that time has progressed. 
and we don't know uh, where some of the cast members have been from the next generation ever since the film stopped. So it is nice to kind of fill some of that backstory out. So uh, without spoiling it, please check out Picard on Paramount Plus. Uh, also, I uh, saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, and you saw my comments there. Or you heard my comments there. But the other thing about the limited series, Dave, that I do like is the fact that they uh, will pop up on Netflix, too. And the Murda Murders is something that I, my wife and I binged watched. It's one of the trending documentaries. It's a miniseries. There are three episodes at about 45 minutes each. And it's about a true-to-life story about the shocking tragedies after a tight-knit uh, South Carolina community exposes a horrifying secret of the most powerful family there. And yeah, uh, and you know something, the this is the trial is going on right now. Yes. You know, uh on this whole thing. It's been on the nightly news. Uh you know, they're I think they're four or five weeks into the trial. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually going on right now and mm. it's about, you know, a tragic loss of life of a of, of a young person in a boating accident and it just the, the onion just gets unpeeled and layers and layers upon layers of this uh, powerful family uh, get exposed as they try to cover up uh, certain aspects of, of what's been going on with this murder, or with this accident and other things that have happened in South Carolina. So uh, it's really interesting how things have unfolded. And it's amazing to me how how, how these people get away with certain things. Uh, and, and you know something, I have to tell you, Al John, uh, I haven't watched this. Nancy has been watching it and she's uh-huh. been giving me sort of the synopsis of it. Um, and I, I want to just say that, you know, this is the type of thing that goes on all over the country where yes. you get these powerful families in these small communities or small areas and they're plugged in with everybody. They know the judges, they know the cops, they know this and that. So if something happens to a family member, you know, people are looking the other way and say, oh, it's okay. He's driving drunk. It's okay. We're not going to charge him. We'll just get him home. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. You yeah. know, so uh, that kind of stuff goes on all the time, but this really, is exposing that because of the the loss of life uh, involved with it. Yeah, the loss of life and the the corruptness of, of what they're doing and insurance fraud and and all the millions and millions of dollars that they're uh, kind of laundering through their 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 business, if the family business, if you will. So it, it's it's crazy. So uh, it's gotten a pretty decent rating uh, there. So. Feel free to, to pick it up. It's once again three episodes, and if you're into the intrigue of these uh, uh, of these kind of people, this kind of true to life stuff that I'm I, I like watching, uh, feel free to check that out. Well, that is all we watched this week. Uh, I will get into Law and Order in just a little bit in the news, but uh, uh, once again, let us know what you're watching. Send us those emails, and we'll definitely check it out in an upcoming episode. Skull Rock Podcast, this week in Disney and pop culture. Before we get into it, I have to say that uh, it's almost March, Dave. I know, it's unbelievable. It's almost March. It's almost time for March Madness. If you're a fan of the Disney parks, uh, something to keep in mind is that uh, The Mandalorian is going to be airing this month on Disney Plus Season 3. And I'm so looking forward to that. And you'll be able to see the Mandalorian walk around the Disney parks there at Galaxy's Edge. I am so looking forward to that because I love seeing Mandalorian in there. 
animatronic puppet uh, Grogu kind of walking around. Super cute, Dave. I, I, when you get a chance to go to Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland, you should definitely check it out because uh, it, it looks great. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, you know, I have to tell you that there's uh, there's a lot of of shows dropping in March. You know that? I mean, now that you, you mentioned it, not only The Mandalorian, uh, but uh, there's a, a new season of Perry Mason on HBO Max, yes. if you've been watching that. Uh, Ted Lasso uh, is dropping uh, the new season for that. Uh, I'm just trying to see what else, um, there, there's, uh, just, uh, I, uh, Outer Banks was the other one that I was trying to, uh, think about. I think Outer Banks is dropping at the end of, uh, March or sometime in March. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, content dropping in March. There is, I think people are. You know, this is kind of the waking up spring into the spring season, if you will. So uh, some new shows out there. And as the Festival of the Arts wraps up over there at Epcot, the Flower and Garden Festival will be uh, begin as well. And uh, I'm big fans of both of those events. You know, the I, I've never the gone Arts. to the Flower and Garden. I, I've oh. gone to the uh, the art. The uh, art, the food and art uh, event. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Done the, I've not done the flower and, and don't they do both of those out at the Disney California Adventure? Well, they do the they do the uh, international food festival there at, at right. um, over there at uh, DCA over there at uh, California Adventure, and I think they do that in the spring. Uh, they have a, a truncated one, and of course, this one here at Epcot, they have the uh, Flower and Garden Festival will be. Uh, pretty lengthy it's gonna be maybe about um, eight nine weeks something like that and then they'll move into the um, what what happens at the uh the the flower and garden festival so what, the, i mean yeah I, I do you buy flowers or you do you go there and pick up plants <laughs> and carry them you around can, with you, you and you go can, on rides you, with a bucket of plants you can do that sure yeah you pick up a little baby group <laughs> while you're at it uh so the the flower and garden festival they do have a lot of like home garden tv home improvement stuff so you can see all the different um uh they've got uh i guess different uh little flower i'm trying to topiaries is what i'm trying to say that so they yeah have yeah well, they, the they're not, you know all around all around epcot you've got the topiaries yeah, right so they've got special topiaries for this time and then they also have kind of the diy like this is what you can do in your backyard kind of showing right. you different things you can do raise gardens they bring in experts to do the diy thing or the home improvement stuff and then they have these other things about making uh kind of little private uh, you know little forestry areas so that they have like a butterfly garden that they have which is super neat i love walking into that and then you can find all kind of different ways that you can kind of increase your knowledge about plants and horticulture and and stuff so they have little seminars but they also have the little food kiosks that are around Epcot as well. So you'll get to eat, you know, have the farm to table experience. You'll yeah. be able to, so all the fresh stuff and is there and it's just really neat how they kind of blend all that stuff. It's all around food and, and gardening. So I really dig that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So please check that out. Um, now you sent in a story about the Hollywood from the Hollywood reporter being Thanos VFX technology lawsuit against Disney was dismissed by a judge. Um, it looked like uh, the longstanding case of the intersection of Hollywood and Silicon Valley revolving around the VFX technology called the Mova Contour, which was allegedly used by a Disney contractor to animate the Avengers villain, 
and other movies had been kind of uh, whisked away, if you will. Yeah, I you know something I I I, I kind of rolled my eyes when I first saw this uh, uh, a while back. Uh, about this lawsuit being filed it's just you know this this is the kind of thing where you got so many different software engineers out there writing code to do certain things and of course there's going to be similarities you know whether that's you know uh on purpose you know like something nefarious where somebody walked off with some code and and used it somewhere else or uh, whether uh, it was just developed in tandem. You know, if you come up with a great idea, the, there's probably a pretty good chance that someone else has come up with a similar idea. Oh, 100%. You know? 100%. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, it, you know, unless it's completely blatant, <laughs> yeah. where you can see yeah, it. But exactly. But we're doing motion capture technology. That stuff has been around and it keeps on getting better and better in the case of this particular lawsuit. They claim that Disney had stolen or used animation software that was not uh, theirs to animate Josh Brolin and Thanos, as well as other kind of motion capture characters. Yeah, but but they couldn't prove it, that, couldn't prove and it. that's why the judge threw it out. Yeah. The, the the judge felt like the the uh, uh, the plaintiff was unable to prove uh, without a you know without a doubt that 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 happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. You know, that someone I I almost feel like at times people like to throw lawsuits at Disney just so they can try to settle for money out of court. <laughs> hey, listen, you know something? There's a building full of lawyers at the Burbank studio lot, you know, the Disney studio lot in Burbank. There, There's just a, a building full of attorneys that are dealing with this kind of stuff. And it happens on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was there was years ago there was uh, uh, the Living Seas Pavilion at at Epcot yeah. uh, had had an attraction where you got into uh, sort of quote an elevator. You know, the ride vehicle went into an elevator. Supposedly, you went down. You know, hundreds of fathoms under the uh, sea, right? Yep. Um, some some uh, guest filed a lawsuit claiming that her eardrums ruptured from the pressure, right? <laughs> and, and and guess what? The ride vehicle uh, goes into this elevator and goes down three or four feet, <laughs> even though you're in there and it's simulating you're going down hundreds of fathoms. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so... So, I mean, come on. I mean, it's ridiculous. You yeah. know, I mean, the, the, there's frivolous lawsuits being thrown at all of these large companies on a regular basis. Yeah, it's like the hot coffee lawsuit. Like, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, let, let's let's turn our attention to something better than hot coffee lawsuits. <laughs> uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio wins five trophies, including the top prize at the 50th Annie Awards, Dave. Yeah, no, I, I I was happy to see this. He's he's sweeping uh, all these award ceremonies with his uh, film. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to see Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I, I, I highly recommend it. I mean, it's just beautiful stop motion film. I think it's just incredibly well executed. Uh, look, I, I think that there are people who, you know, aren't big fans of the movie who felt like it was a little on the dark side. There's uh, the fascia, fascism uh, facet uh, to the story, uh, you know, fascist Italy. Uh, and I, look, I just, 
felt overall, I enjoyed it. I liked it. Uh, I liked what he did with the property. It's very different from Disney's Pinocchio. I know, right? I will just tell you that. But you know something? I'm a fan of variations on some of those classic uh, children's stories, right? Yeah. Um, And I, I obviously love... Disney's Pinocchio, the animated Pinocchio. I think it's the pinnacle of the animation art form. It's one of the most beautiful films I think that's uh, ever been done at Disney. Still in my book, my favorite. Uh, And I will say that I really liked uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, It's a different take on that story. Uh, And then I hated the live action film that Disney did with Tom Hanks and uh, with Bob Zemeckis directing. I I thought that was terrible. It was a waste. Yeah, (laughs) it it really was. But you know what? Not a waste of talent. You know, he's he's sweeping. You know, he's getting uh, a lot of uh, accolades for his film. Uh, Marcel the Shell uh, with Shoes On also won three awards. Uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, collected a pair of Annie's for storyboarding and editing. Um, I think that uh, it was fantastic that... uh, uh, Pete Doctor uh, received the Winsor McKay Award for career contributions to animation. There you go. Uh, and uh, so did uh, TV series creator uh, Craig McCracken and Evelyn Lambert. Uh, posthumously uh, from the National Film Board of Canada. They received uh, accolades as well. Um, And uh, by the way, Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, uh, was there to present Pete Doctor with his uh, Windsor McKay Award for Career Contributions. Very nice. Um, Also, our friend, a friend of mine, uh, uh, historian and educator Mindy Johnson, received the June Foray Award for Charitable Impact uh, um, on the industry and the uh, iWorks uh, award for technical achievement went to uh, visual effects reference platform initially developed by a team led by Nick Cannon and Francisco Chardavani. I can't say the last name Chardaviano. Okay. Uh, to eliminate <laughs> uh, incompatibilities between digital con- content and creation software. Uh, so there you have it. Um, you know, uh, it was, uh, um, you know, a uh, the big night for animation um, on Saturday. Yeah, how about that? I mean, what, so, and I also saw that best feature goes to Turning Red, which is, yes. a, well, I yeah. think you may have mentioned that too. But um, yeah, great, great night. Great to see Pete Doctor get some flowers there from uh, the, you know, that group as well as uh, presented by Bob Iger. Very cool. Yes. So here we are once again. The moment of the show that uh, we 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 don't like to talk about all the time, but we do want to shed light on the lives of these tremendous actors, these contributors uh, to the Hollywood to the to the art form, as it were. And this is celebrating sad, sad, death. celebrating death. Oh my gosh, Dave! I know we, I, I haven't done the voiceover yet. We'll we'll get to that. But um, I've been watching Richard Belzer for gosh, I don't know how many years—thirty five years, Dave. I mean, um, my wife and I liked his his character, Detective John Munch, on Homicide: Life on the Street. Yes, and followed him through nearly what twenty seasons of Law and Order. And so many other shows. He passed away this week. 
at the age of 78. Now, I know Richard Belzer as a comic, um, and he actually, this is an interesting story. If you look it up on YouTube, he had made fun of professional wrestlers. I think he even had like Hulk Hogan on his old talk show, the Richard Belzer show. It was like kind of like a late night talk show. And he said, well, wrestling isn't real. And all of a sudden he got put into a hold by Hulk Hogan or something on the show. And he totally passed out and his head hit the floor. Wow. (laughs) And and it's like, yeah, uh, probably not the best thing to do as a comedian when you're younger. But as he matured and got older, he got involved with all these great shows uh, like Homicide Life on the Streets and Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. But uh, once again, just he passed away uh, in his home in southwest France. And he had a lot of health issues, according to his longtime uh, friend of the actor, who said, he basically um, set everybody off as one of his last words, you know, basically, you know, telling everybody. Well, to, his to last <laughs> words apparently to his friend Don't was F you MF you effing Mother Effer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, for Richard Belzer, I mean, what do you expect, right? Oh yeah, here it is. They talk about they talked about warming up the audiences in the early days of Saturday Night Live and was put to sleep by Hulk Hogan back in nineteen by it, what the late uh, the eighties or something like that. So yeah. Um yeah, just just great. But uh, I, I was surprised when I saw this uh, because, you know, I didn't think he was a that old, but he was yeah. 78. But even 78, that's young. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, he was in bad, some, some bad health. But uh, rest in peace, Richard Belzer. Another uh, actress that has been uh, gracing our small screens for a while, uh, notably on Hill Street Blues, passes away at 83. Barbara Bosson, Emmy, Emmy nominated actress. Known for Hill Street Blues, Dave. Um, that's a lot of Emmy nominations. Five consecutive years for her turn as the divorcee Faye Frillo on the acclaimed drama in NBC Hill Street Blues, created by her then husband, Stephen Bochco. Yeah. So there you have it. Now she was yeah. in a bunch of Bochco uh, productions as well as Cop Rock, Hooperman, Murder One, but uh, she passes away uh, and rest in peace to her. And it looks like uh, she had passed away. Um, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember her uh, the situation where she passed away. I think uh, I guess Bochco passed away in 2018 with a battle of leukemia, and I think uh, uh, it doesn't say. Maybe it doesn't really say here what she passed away of here. Yeah. Last but not least on this list, Walter Mersch. Oscar awarding producer of In the Heat of the Night dies at 101 days. Now we're talking. Now Whoa. we're talking. You hit the triple digits. You've had a pretty full life. Yeah, absolutely. Now I remember uh, In the Heat of the Night, once again, a great kind of cop drama uh, there. But uh, you know, once again, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on his resume um, there. In the Heat of the Night star, Sidney Portier was in. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, no, I was just going to mention, I, I saw In the Heat of the Night uh, last year in the theaters. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. You know, a restored print. It was a TCM or, uh, is, yeah, TCM uh, presentation, uh, Turner Classic Movies, uh, which is going on on you know monthly. You can go to your local movie theater. Just look it up. Uh, uh, the Fathom Events is putting on these uh, TCM screenings. In fact, on Sunday, uh, March 5th, 
you're going to be able to see a beautiful 4K projection of uh, Casablanca in the theaters. Oh, there you go. I mean, that's fantastic. But uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but In the Heat of the Night, it, it, it was a great film. But this guy also went on. To, uh, he was a producer on Billy Wilder's uh, The Apartment, 1960, and on the Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins musical drama West Side Story, the original 1961 West Side Story. Right. I mean, this guy had a story career. Uh, and, uh, you know, he worked on films like, uh, some like it hot, the magnificent seven, the great escape, the pink Panther fortune cookie, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. The Thomas crown affair fiddler on the roof. Same time next year. I mean, holy mackerel, right? I mean, this is unbelievable. You know, he, uh, you know, the company, he was, uh, in charge of allied artists, uh, and he formed formed the Mirsch uh, company with his older brothers uh, and signed a distribution deal with the United artists. The company thrived producing a wide ranging slate of 67 films uh, during two decades, collecting 28 Oscars. I mean, this guy just what an incredible career. I mean, 101, we should all be so lucky, right? Al John. Yeah. 100%, 101%. Um, in this particular case, you know, as I mentioned, I actually misspoke and said small screen. I meant large screen, the silver screen, if you will. So, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. You know, when you look at the fact that he had that production company and went to Allied Artists and the United Artists deal with all those great films. So, once again, he, he leaves behind a, a great body of work and added so much to the fabric that is Hollywood and what we see on the big screen. So, what a great life. Walter Murch at 101. And now we move on to our interview of the week. Sit back and relax as we talk to our friend, Burt Klein, on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we've got another fantastic guest. We've got producer, director, and animator, Burt Klein, who I have to say, welcome, uh, Burt, to the uh, Skull Rock Podcast. Yes, Bert, that is our studio audience going wild. Thank you, Dave. I love the Skull Rock podcast, by the way. Oh, I well, we appreciate the fact that you listen, and I'm glad to have you on because I have to say, you know, you have been super busy uh, over the years. You've worked on tons of stuff. I don't even think we're going to cover everything, but I mean, I, I, you know, you, you've worked on everything from the Tom and Jerry movie and Lion King all the way through, you know, uh, Frozen 2, Raya and the Last Dragon and Canto. You've done, uh, you produced and directed and, and animated on Pups of Liberty, the dog cloration of, li- <laughs> I'm blowing it. <laughs> the Pups of Liberty, the dog cloration of independence hey. uh, uh, series and, we're going to get to all of that later, but Bert, I always like to ask our guests, how did you get into the business? How did you start out? Where did you go to school? Just give us the backstory. Okay. Well, I love to talk and I can tend to ramble. So cut me off a little bit if I go on too long, but I would say probably the 1981 illusion of life special that was on where it talked about Fox and the Hound and Black Cauldron was one of the first things that made me think I really want to be an animator. And they had a section with Haley Mills, 
but the Donald Duck and the Farmer, which they recreated, I think, from previous demos that they've done. And that just got me hooked. And I wanted to figure out any way to do it. I remember the Disney Treasury art of animation, as well as the illusion of life. But just seeing like these animation drawings of, you know, Jiminy Cricket and all these things where I thought, how do I get these things to move? And I thought one of these days I'm going to figure out how to move and move these things and make them come to life. I even remember I started off on this crazy uh, endeavor where I thought I'm going to animate Pinocchio. And I just started drawing like a few like sequential drawings of like Jiminy Cricket, like saying, uh, finishing singing uh, when you wish upon a star and then realize I'm not really getting anywhere here, but I I knew I was hooked and I needed to figure out what the trick was. I remember there was a 1985 movie called one crazy summer that had, that was about an animator and he got a 16 millimeter camera and was shooting animation. And I thought, I really want to do that. But how do I find that? Where do I get that? I could never quite put two and two together. Uh, Two things kind of happened at once. Um, They used to have a department store called the Federator Group. And they used to demo these computers, these Commodore Amiga computers. And it had this amazing full color animation playing like nothing I had ever seen on a home computer. And I thought, this can animate. This can help me do animation. and. I begged my parents uh, to do it. It took them to get me one. It was kind of expensive, an Amiga 500. Uh, My dad was convinced in about six months or so, and they got me one, and I was absolutely hooked. And what that led to was me getting uh, animation magazines, Amiga magazines. I would look and read anything I could about how to put animation together. And you know, I, just, I, I, I do want to just interject here sure. uh, before we get too far into it, because you mentioned the illusion of life and that was written by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, two of Walt Disney's nine old men. And that book has come up a number of times uh, with interviews that we've done with other animators. And I just wanted to let our listeners know that uh, the illusion of life by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson is still in print and it's still available. You can get a great paperback edition of it uh, online, either through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or books a million. And I just wanted to just interject that, but go ahead, keep going. Uh, oh, really quick. I may jump ahead to the future where that book is of course, very special to me as well as everyone else in the business. I've read it from cover to cover several times. Um, Through uh, my intro to animation, my animation teacher was friends with Frank and Ollie, and I sort of became friends with them too. And they would review my work and look at my work, and they followed my career. And about a week or two after I started at Disney, I know I'm getting ahead, but there was a gift waiting for me in the mailroom, and it was a first edition illusion of life signed by them given to me saying, Bert, you've got a great career. Go, go, go. That would have been in October, 1993. But just going back in time a little bit to how I got there, my dad found an article about an animation program in Roland Heights, California that won an Amiga 2500. And it had all these programs that came with it. And he said, hey, this is a better model than what you have. Maybe we might want to go down there and you might want to look at it. And that was sort of the motivation to go down. When I went to that program and my dad, I'm grateful to him to this day, he drove me down there. It was about 20, 25 minutes from our house. And it was at a high school. And we were met by one of the student teachers who took us to the back. And there I met the animation teacher, Dave Master. And what I saw was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was one of the most amazing working, living, breathing animation workshops 
uh, that rivaled anything that I'd seen anywhere or heard of. And people were using, using those amazing lion lambs doing stop motion films. They were still kind of cutting film a little bit, but they did 2D animation, 3D animation, claymation animation. I was in heaven. And in the corner was that Amiga 25 computer with all these programs that I wanted to try. And I used that as the vehicle to basically start my animated filmmaking. Uh, I would say one quick thing about that program. It was wonderful. It was at an actual high school. Yep. And Dave Masters, by the way, terrific guy. I, I, I don't know what he's doing, if he's even still around. Oh, you know? I talked to him. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's mostly retired. And if Dave, if you're listening to this, myself and many others uh, owe their career to you. But yeah. talk about a go-getter. He did he more with a high school program than I think anybody's ever done. And what was amazing about it is that if you did not go to that high school, which I did not, you could go after school as what was part of the regional occupation program. And it was maybe $25 a semester. I mean, it yeah. was little to no cost. And, and Dave was very welcoming, you know, and I, and by the way, I'm familiar with that program because I went out and spoke at that program. Oh yeah. Back in the nineties. Yeah. Yourself. A- along with tons of other people from the industry. Well, you kind of segued into what I, I was going into, like Frank and Ollie would come, Chuck Jones would yeah. come. This was not Cal Arts, by the way. This was just sort of, this was just a regular place, but Dave Master was not a regular guy. Dave Master had no fear and like reached out to the top of the top and brought them to kids. And then yeah. showed what an individual could make happen if you, you, you go out and you, if you're a go-getter. So that really became my second home. Uh, if it wasn't enough doing that program, Dave Master at the time also founded a thing which is no longer around called the L.A. Student Film Institute. And at the end of the year, our program and some other programs that were between that were high school programs mostly would showcase the best of their work at the end of the year at the Directors Guild of America. And it would be judged by animation professionals, directors. I mean, you know, you name it, they would be there. I mean, I remember. Uh, you know, Mike Gabriel was there, Frank and Ollie, all the folks from, from you, you name it. It was really, really terrific. So essentially I got my education there from Dave master, from speaker speakers through other students. And the funny thing about it is that when Frank and Ollie would come master, they, I call this public master, Dave master, Mr. Master, he would tell Frank and Ollie, don't go easy on these kids. Tell them the truth. Be honest with their work. And they were. And I remember showing my first bit of animation to them. And, you know, they they told me what was honestly wrong with it. And they really instilled this idea of doing something that um, was basically clear and interesting, you know, as opposed to just doing something for movement's sake. And it kind of became the cornerstone of my education. I'm grateful to that to this day. And that extended to when in the early 90s, uh, Disney was starting to expand and they needed people uh, to fill their ranks, uh, they'd send their recruiters like Bill Matthews over to our class at things like the open house. And our teacher told the exact same thing to Bill Matthews, be hard on these kids, be honest, you know, and that truthfulness was exactly what we needed. So I would say that to some degree, probably one of the next big occurrences that was a huge part with my development there as I was, you know, a, a fairly strong student there. I was doing 2d animation on the Amiga a little bit on paper, but I was just entirely fascinated with 
I, I could draw with a mouse. I don't think we had a tablet back then, like a stylus. I think we did, but it wasn't very good. And Bill Matthews uh, hit around, this is an amazing week for me. I think it was around sometime in 1990. I had not graduated high school yet. I was still in high school and he picked three students to job shadow at the studio for either a week or a week and a half. And it was during the time when Beauty and the Beast was in production. Aladdin was just getting going uh, really well. And um, it was that amazing week, like around during the Oscars. Nick Park went to visit there and Bruno Bozzetto spoke there. Mm -hmm. And it was just an absolutely magical week. And one other really notable thing during that week is that uh, Tom Cito, who also came to our class, who is a, is tremendously influential in our class. He asked, I said, Hey Tom, after, I think after watching Nick Park speak on the flower street theater, which is where we used to work. I said, Hey, can I walk with you over to your desk over on the airway building? Cause I wanted to get a glimpse of what was going on over there. He goes, yeah, yeah, sure. Kid, come on. So we're going, we're walking across the street and you can imagine how excited I am talking to a real Disney animator. And on Flower Street, I wasn't, it was either Flower Street or Airway, but I wasn't looking where I was going. And I was, I was looking up at him while I was talking and he, I felt something yanked me and he pulled me back and he just pulled me out of the way of a moving car. <laughs> so uh, Tom, if you're listening, you either, uh, I've told him this story many times. I think he remembers it, but you either saved my life or saved me from being seriously injured. But that was one very important thing that week. And the other thing that was very important was uh, Walt Sanchfield uh, getting to go to his class and doing in-between practicing. And it really made me think, okay, I really, really want to do this. Um, and I hope it works out. Uh, so that was sort of like not quite. So there was one other step before I got into Disney because, you know, they, they, they knew of me and were watching my work. Uh, I was also very fortunate where you mentioned Tom and Jerry, the movie, and that was my first job. I think 1991, it was an intern job and the student film that I showed at the LA student film Institute, uh, the folks from film Roman were there and they liked my work. And I said, Hey, do you want to come and intern at our place for a couple of weeks? And I said, absolutely. It'd be like a dream to, and it was just after they moved from Toluca Lake to North Hollywood. Um, so I went there for two weeks and that turned into the rest of the summer and that turned into a little bit of freelance work and that turned into being invited back to work there full time uh, upon my graduation. Uh, during my now that's time, graduation from high school, right? Yes, Graduation from high school. Yeah. Now I, you know, had toured CalArts. I was interested in going there and somehow I just got into working. I think Steve Gordon kind of had a little bit of a, I think I listened to his podcast. And yeah, Steve, Steve Gordon actually uh, was one of those prodigies like you uh, who uh, went right from high school. I, in fact, I think that uh, Steve, Steve Gordon actually started working at Bakshi uh, while he was in high school. Same thing, actually. Yeah. And I would say it was a, a similar thing with me. I've, you know, I don't know if I've ever met Steve Gordon, but Steve, if you're ever around, we, we can compare notes, but I wouldn't say I was a prodigy. I was just really into it. I mean, if I was to joke now, I talk about back then and say, oh, when I had promise, you know, but <laughs> I, uh, so anyway, just to try and just get to the beginning of my Disney career, uh, I loved working at Film Roman. 
I loved, I was very fortunate to be doing layout and little bits of animation, if you want to call it that, because you kind of animated, you kind of didn't because the final work was sent overseas. But I got to work on season four of The Simpsons, working with great folks like Rich Moore, Wes Archer, David Silverman. Um, it was a dream come true. And it was just like every day was just truly, truly. I felt like, you know what I felt like? I felt like in Goodfellas, like Henry Hill, when he's like that little 13 year old kid getting to at the cab stand with all these grown-ups you know <laughs> and the funny part is is they really weren't that much older than uh, me are, are you like, saying animation it's like the animation mafia a little bit right? you, 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 you were you were apprenticing for the animation mafia huh yeah it was like the kid <laughs> that they kind of let hang around you know and it, it, it was amazing and the funny part is is we were all so young back then i mean they really weren't that much older than me i mean rich moore i mean i looked up to him still do a friend of mine and i I thought, oh, he's so much older. I think he was like 24 or 25. I mean, everybody was so young. But when you're like 17 or 18, yeah, you know, that, that age difference seems bigger. So I will just jump ahead a little bit where my last year before I went to go work at Film Roman to work with Rich on this show called The Critic, Dave Master gave me an interesting bit of advice and he gave it to some other students too. And some listened to him and some didn't. He knew that Lion King was coming up was king of the jungle at the time. And he said, yeah. you know, you might want to consider doing a film with animals. And I think he told that to some other kids too. And some people thought, oh, that's just like a Disney kiss up film or that's kind of pandering or whatnot. But, you know, I listened to him and I did a film of, it was, I, I did a film with lions in Africa and cranes and, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, it was kind of like a nature documentary, but it was really long and boring but I tried to make it interesting, but I did it. It had a lot of uh, rough animation in it. To make a long story short, I do that film. I start working at Film Roman, gra graduated high school. And then I get a phone call. Of actually, then it was that thing where they had a PA system where they say, uh, so-and-so, line two, and you had to get up and answer one of those phones on the wall. <laughs> so I did that, and it was Bill Matthews from Disney. And what had happened is just by pure providence, that film that I did was shown at a student film festival in Ojai, California, near where Sergio Aragonis lives. This has nothing to do with, he could have been there, but I don't know. But it just so happened that for whatever reason, Eric Goldberg, who was just starting to direct Pocahontas at the time, was in the audience. And he happened to be sitting next to my teacher, Dave Master. Um, Eric, liked what he saw on the screen and he talked i mean I, I can paraphrase eric's told me this story i hope i'm not telling it inaccurately um it's just sort of as i know it to be but they started up a conversation uh, and they said and master's like uh, oh that's a that's a student of mine uh you know bert you know and i think eric says you know i think they, they could we could use him over at disney on, on lion king and he said uh send send the tape into the review board and uh, we'll see you know we'll, we'll show it to the review board so jumping up ahead, I get the phone call and it's Bill Matthews. And he tells me that my tape was shown to the review board. And I, I found out later it was because of that chance of Eric and my teacher, Dave Master, being at the film festival. But he started telling me, Glenn Keane saw your work and he said this. And John Pomeroy saw your work and we saw and he said this. And we're interested in getting you in here as the trainee. And that was an interesting thing because I thought, wow, I, I love my family here over on, you know, critic and working on the Simpsons and I'm getting, I'm having a great time. And, but I got 
I, I was, I was really, I was told, you know, you got to take this chance and I'm glad that I did. And I started at Disney. It was called Disney feature animation at the time. I started there, uh, October 4th, 1993 as an in-betweener trainee. At the time we had contracts, uh, as opposed to, I think now we just have work agreements or whatnot. I don't know what you'd call them, but think we're at well but our con- one thing in my contract it said if i ever want to go back to college they will pause my contract let me go to cal arts or wherever and then uh and then come back and you know I, I i stayed there and so that was sort of the beginning of me getting into the industry and how i started at disney animation uh, that that that's an amazing story because you know most of the guests we've had on, with the exception of Steve Gordon and I believe Mike Gabriel, um, most of the other guests you know went through an animation program, whether it was you know Cal Arts or Art Center or you know some some sort of a program uh, after high school. So, you know, you're, you're in a special group of people, a very small group of people who went right from high school into the industry. It was fairly rare. I don't want to speak for Eric, but he was pretty young. I think he might've gone to college for a semester before. Yeah. And so he, but he was doing stuff very young too. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, a lot, a lot of the artists who went, went to, went through like the Cal arts animation program, you know, uh, a lot of those people never finished the program. You know, they might have done, you know, a year or two or three and got plucked out uh, or, you know, got hired someplace and just never finished and, you know, never graduated from the, the program. Interestingly enough, though, and, you know, I, I, I didn't go there, but I did teach character animation there, I think, uh, 2006, 2007. So I, I did teach there for a year and, and several of my students are actually uh, still working at the studio. And that's fantastic. What, what, what do you remember about working on the lion King? Let's see. The interesting thing about lion King, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things I remember working about the lion King. I didn't work on it very much. Uh, I was a trainee. I was an in-between trainee. And at the very end, I had a mentor. My mentor was Renee Holt. And really, my job at the time was to learn how to do cleanup in betweens to be ready to work on her cleanup unit on Pocahontas. I, I really expressed my interest on in helping out and doing production. And she contacted Vera, and through Vera, um, I helped out uh, a few different cleanup leads, uh, doing little bits of in between and cleanup, a little bit on Hyena, a little bit on Simba, a little bit on that mouse that that scar is about to eat. So I did um, in between and clean up on it. Uh, not very much. I wish I could have done more. Uh, in those days, um, there was a bulletin board for credits and you were supposed to initial your name for the credit. I looked at it. I didn't see my name on there. And, you know, I talked to one of the assistant animators there. I think her name was Teresa Eidenbach. I said, hey, I worked on the movie, but I, my name's not there on the credits. I, I must have slipped under the radar. And she said, ah, let that one go. You're new. You'll have plenty of credits. Don't make any noise. So I didn't. And of all the films to have worked on, uh, I am uncredited on The Lion King. Oh. Now, to be fair, I didn't do that much. But you know what? There's actually been some things that I've done actually less on 
that I've gotten a credit on. Yeah, uh, and, and by the way, you know, when you look at the screen credits from the 1990s, everybody got screen credit. You know, yeah. I, I mean, the security host and the buildings got screen credit. The the coffee guy got screen credit. You know, I mean, you know, seriously. Well, that shows how naive I was. Because <laughs> I didn't want to ruffle. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers being new. So I didn't I didn't ask. So I would say if, if giving advice to anybody is like, you know, nothing would have gotten hurt if I asked. So you might as well just ask because, you know, you know, I always say ask because the worst that somebody's going to say is no. They could have said no, you know, yeah, but, but I doubt it, you know, yeah, so it's just what it's just it's just what happened. So that yeah. that's sort of my memory on The Lion King. So I, I did. That was the first film that I worked on doing some like production cleanup on and my first credited uh, work there. Uh, in cleanup, I think it's my only cleanup credit there was, I think when things slowed down a little bit on Pocahontas, there was a little bit of a lull. Uh, they you did some a, work on the Goofy movie, they right? Took a sequence of the Goofy movie that Brett yeah. Newton was heading up uh, the cleanup on. And I, uh, I worked on that. So, and that's and, a very and, and, and you're credited as an in-between artist on that. I am an in-between. So that is my first credit that I had uh, at Disney feature animation as an in-between artist on a goofy movie. And, uh, and from there you went on to Pocahontas and you did rough in-betweening on po po Pocahontas, or at least that's what you're credited with. Yeah. And interesting story about that is that was a transition for me. Rough in-betweening was kind of like a job that existed in a bygone time where it was very helpful uh, for production, but it was also a little bit of a transition uh, from uh uh, clean up to animation. They had had an animation contest because where they were looking for some uh, trainee animators to animate on Pocahontas. Yeah. A whole bunch of people were taking that test. It was a very hard test. It was Pocahontas talking to Nakoma off, talking to Nakoma, her friend off screen, getting into a boat. And it was very complicated. And I did the test and you know what? I was not chosen to be a trainee animator on Pocahontas, but I was offered, you can be a rough in-betweener on it. One of the people that was a trainee animator on that, I mean, uh, was Dave Hancock, and he was John Pomeroy's rough in-betweener. So he went on to animate, and John needed somebody new, and I guess he saw my name on the list, and he thought he'd give me a try. So I worked on one scene for John, and I worked so carefully to match his line and not wrinkle the papers and, and do a really good job. And then he just kept giving me more work. And I worked with John for about a year on Pocahontas doing his rough in-betweens, pencil so, tests. And, and that out. was mo mostly John Smith, right? Yep. That was John Smith. And yeah. he was a supervisor on John Smith. Not really my, you know, I haven't, you know, not my first choice for what I'm, is really my, in my wheelhouse for animating, but I learned a lot. And uh, it was an amazing time. And while I was doing that, I'd help out other animators too when John didn't have work. Uh, I did tests on the side, lots of tests because I wanted to try and put my work out there again because I wanted to animate. Uh, and one thing is that's different between CG and 2D now is that when you go into CG, you're always animating right from the get-go. You may be doing crowds, you may not be getting A shots, but yeah. you're always getting to animate something and in a hand-drawn Generally, unless you just struck gold, you basically started off in cleanup and could be in there for a certain amount of time. It took me about two years. 
But the way that I remember this, I was working late one night on this test and Eric was in his office. He was behind his director chair. It was late. I'm not sure what he was doing. And I, I stopped by, talked to him a little bit. And it was a really, really interesting uh, conversation that we had. Oh yeah. You know, leading up to that, I don't know what happened before or after. So I'll just tell you both events and maybe someday I'll remember what order they happened. But I remember just saying, Hey, you know, I would love just to animate anything on this show. I'll just animate like a settler shoveling with his act, you know, shoveling or picking with yeah. his axe or doing something. I would love to do a crowd. And he said to me, he said, I know you can do it. I have total faith in you, but just be patient. Keep doing your tests and yeah. you know, things will, you know, that that's how things work, you know? And when I did some of my tests, I actually signed up on director time board. And when all the animators were finished showing Eric their animation in Pocahontas, I remember Stephanie Barker, our APM at the time, she got me in last and I got director time with Eric and I showed him the tests I was working on. And he said something else that was very influential to me. I was uh, animating a test of Ratcliffe. And I saw like all those animators animating these close-ups of Ratcliffe talking and dialogue and all the facial. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. So all these tests I had were just these facial shots of Ratcliffe. And Eric said to me, that's, that's really nice. But what I want to see you do is do something physical. Have him walking across the deck, saying a line, picking up a, a broom, throwing it to somebody, full body, full figure, really show what you can do. And, you know, that I took that to heart. And I changed course of how I was doing my personal tests. And eventually I got my um, work together for to show to the review board. One other story about that to, uh, that I can say for a dear friend of mine and a lot of us, Press Romanillos, who um, I love very much and is no longer with us. Press was an amazing draftsman. I, he had become an animator just on Pocahontas. Very, he was a new animator, so, so talented and so helpful. And my life drawings were okay, but they weren't that great. And I was a little self-conscious about them. And I was working just the night before I was going to submit my stuff towards the end of Pocahontas because I wanted to be a trainee animator on the next film, whether it was Hunchback or Hercules. Because myself and a bunch of other young animators or young aspiring animators are trying to do this. Um, Really late at night, Press was there still working. And I asked him to look at my portfolio. And he said, yeah, these are good. That hand looks a little funny. And he said, here, let me, let me fix it. And he took a kneaded eraser, erase, rubbed down my hand on my live drawing and fixed it. And that was one of the kindest, most selfless gestures I'd ever seen. And that was just the little bit I needed to get my live drawing submission finished uh, along. Because I had my three-quarter inch tape done. And so yeah. I am forever grateful to him for that. And as a result of that submission... Uh, the very next job that I had was as, as a trainee animator on Hercules working with Eric. Eric went back to supervising animation and he was a supervising animator on Phil. Uh, he was my mentor. He took me on on that show. And I think I was a trainee for about maybe six months and then got promoted to animator. And that then I started animating on the show and I was an animator on Hercules. And that is how I went from a trainee in cleanup working on Lion King bits and pieces to, to animating. Yeah. You know, I, I want to just mention uh, to our listeners, when you talk about doing personal tests, 
you're talking about doing personal animation tests, sometimes with characters, studio characters or classic characters, but you're doing these tests on your own time to hone your skills, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, I think when they were recruiting me, and it's funny, Tom Schumacher actually was the one who met with me and said, oh, we want you to join the Disney family and all this. And I thought, wow, the, the top guy is, is talking to me to come and there's going to be a, a path. I, I was just thrown into the cleanup mix and there was no path to animating other than figuring it out that you just had to on your own. Nobody told you this, but you had to do exactly what you were saying. You had to do personal tests on your own time. And the type of tests that were generally done is you would get a line from a live action film that kind of looked like a character and then you animated it. And the test that I did that really impressed folks is I animated Stromboli uh, singing If I Were a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof by uh, Topol. And it was a, a really good match of design and voice. And it was full bodied, like Eric had suggested. And that's really, I think, the test that, that gave me the shot. But nobody picked it out for me. Nobody told me to do it. It was just something where I kind of got the idea like, oh, this is what you got to do to make it happen. Yeah. And, and you did something challenging. Oh, it was hard. And I yeah. learned a lot on it. And I, um, you know, still there's things that I learned on that test that I'm hopefully still applying today. But yeah, that's absolutely how it was. And it was a very exciting time. And there was a group of a lot of young folks, some of them, most of them having gone to CalArts, unlike me, I was the youngest of the group. And I was never, I was, I was friends with a lot of folks, but since I didn't go to CalArts, I didn't quite have that bond. But a lot of those folks are doing amazing things in the industry right now. Joe, yeah. Moore, Mike Wu, a lot of sure. Dave Pimentel, uh, you know, a lot of young guys that are now like, you know, directing or designing, you know, I, so I, you know I, and you you become an animator on Hercules and you do Hercules. Anything stand out for you on Hercules? Do you have any like like a memory that bubbles up on that film? Let's see. Well, the whole thing was an absolute dream. I couldn't have had a more fun time on a more wonderful character uh, than working on Phil. Uh, I think probably the idea that Eric, towards the end of it, you know, I started off doing little scenes. Like I remember the very first scene I animated, I shared with Andreas Deja, which I just could not believe that I was sharing the screen with Andreas and Phil was playing, you know, uh, just sort of like the secondary character in the scene to Hercules, which was Andreas's. But back then, in, as you remember in dailies, when they share their shots once a week, they would always put um, the animator slate on the shot, which, which maybe wasn't the right thing to do because so many people worked on it. But, it was so exciting to see that slate come up when it was filmed out and it said Klein Deja on it, on the slate. Yeah, that yeah. A, That's a memory in a moment. I'll never forget seeing <laughs> that in the theater. And also good too, which was not exactly the same. What was great too is towards the end, Eric gave me an amazing section to animate. Uh, Phil and Hercules has given up all hope and he, you know, convinces him to go on and what a special person he is, sort of like that moment where the mentor, you know, cheers the hero on in this heartfelt bit of dialogue. And the fact that me being, that, that was very exciting that I got that little bit of continuity to do. So th those are two things that stand out for me for working in Hercules and working with Ron and John was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, it's funny too, because I worked with John, Ron and John many times, uh, the last thing I worked with them on was on Moana. 
And it's funny too, because I was so young back then. I think no matter how much time goes by, John's always going to think of me as a kid, which I think is hilarious. That's great. <laughs> I was, I was a kid. I we, was were, a kid. we were all kids when we started there. We were. And you know? I was a little on the younger side, but yeah, I'm like, John, I'm older now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, let me ask you this. You went from Hercules on to Mulan. Wasn't Mulan uh, animated down in Florida? Did you go to Florida or did you do a section of that in Los Angeles? There were, I guess maybe it wasn't getting, I, I don't know why they decided to do this, but uh, to be honest with you, everyone wanted to go on a Tarzan, myself included. Right. And uh, I did not go on a Tarzan initially because I was selected with a group of 12 others to be part of an L.A. unit for Mulan. So to help, to help them out. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that movie was primarily done at the uh, Florida studio, which was at Walt Disney World. Uh, and I think a lot of our listeners will, may remember that uh, the animation studio in, in the uh, uh, Disney MGM studio, which is now the Disney studio uh, park uh, in Orlando. Absolutely. And there was, uh, you know, most of it we did working with the directors. We called it CLI, CLI at the other time, at the time, CLI before zoom video conferencing. It was like a big deal. They had a whole room for it. Yeah. Yeah. I worked with Tony Bancroft and Barry cook over uh, the video screen. Um, that was an amazing time. Very, very interesting. Uh, but yes, uh, we sort of, I, I don't think we got, like you said, the bulk of the work was done by Florida. The work we did was mostly helping out, but it's really cool that I got to work on such a great film. Uh, so, yeah. And I worked a little bit with Aaron Blaze and, uh-huh. you know, and Bruce Johnson um, and Mark Ken. That was the first time I ever uh, worked with Mark. So I worked a little bit with him. Uh, we did get to go out to Florida for a couple weeks uh, where we just sort of got to know everybody. And nowadays we would, would have just zoomed, but they paid to fly us out there and, kind of get to know people in person. That, like, that was back in the salad days, as I call it. Boy, were they, but it was fun. <laughs> so, so that was, so yes. Yeah, so I got to spend a little bit of time in Florida, but not much, but, but, but working out here in the LA unit. So yes, I did animate on Mulan after Hercules. And, and, and from there you slid right into Tarzan, which is what you wanted to go on to, right? And you did additional did. animation on Tarzan. Yep. I worked on it the last six months. It's funny because the additional animators, they put way, way at the end. A lot of folks worked on it. I, I always thought, I mean, uh, and that's another interesting thing, too, because I, I did a, I don't know, maybe I didn't do that much on it, but I did one very large uh, shot on it that went on for a long time, not necessarily time-wise working on it, but it was long on for screen. But yeah, I got to work on Tarzan, work with Chris Buck and, and Kevin Lima, and um, that was fun. Uh, the character of Tarzan was all done in Paris, but all the other characters were, were done out here. So, yeah, I worked on Tarzan next. And so, you know, if you're patient, you get to, to do what you want. So I got to work on Tarzan. And, and from Tarzan, uh, what did you do from there? After Tarzan, I believe it was right after Tarzan. That is an interesting time because then I went on a Kingdom of the Sun. I was animating on Kingdom of the Sun. And, and 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 I just want to let our listeners know, Kingdom of the Sun actually became uh, the Emperor's New Groove, 
for our, our listeners out there. But prior to uh, the Emperor's New Groove, it was originally being developed uh, under the title Kingdom of the Sun. And we actually had Roger Allers on and talked an entire episode about Kingdom of the Sun. Yeah, so I was part of that original version. And then when Kingdom of the Sun kind of got yeah, put on pause to be reworked, I worked with Eric Goldberg on Rhapsody in Blue, which was became part of Fantasia 2000. I and, know it. I know it very well, Bert. Fantasia and, 2000. I spent five years on it. You were the the VFX soup, <laughs> VFX supervisor and artistic coordinator. Yeah. yeah. So I worked on Rhapsody, and uh, I probably animated twenty or twenty five percent of Rhapsody. Eric gave me a lot of footage on that, and I was young and could work late and handle it. And it was definitely a, a highlight. I animated. You were young and hungry. I was hungry. young and hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I animated a lot of that show. And I think the stuff I'm most proud of is uh, I animated the bulk of the Rockefeller center ice skating sequence. Oh, that's awesome. So that was all on huge pieces of paper, huge pans. I had like a giant plexiglass board on my desk. It was a 24 field, right? was 24 field that went all over the place on a 24 field with takeovers. And I think I had to figure that out myself because I think when it was given to me, it was all to be animated in place, but then it was maybe realized that they're going to have to leave skating marks on the yeah. thing. So I thought, Oh, this, this needs to be animated one-to-one. So I did the whole thing in space. I, I don't know if you, ever, you probably remember, but the, one of the very last, not the last scene in the show, but the last scene in there where they transition to the family and they throw the girl up in the air and catch her. It was on a pan of takeovers that was super long. And in <laughs> retrospect, their hat, it went across the room. I think there might've been an easier way to do it, but <laughs> that's just what happened. You that, know? Is, that is so awesome. So that's my Fantasia 2000 story. So after that was finished, uh, Emperor's New Groove. Uh, right. Yeah, because they paused Kingdom of the Sun. Uh, they had the crew work on Rhapsody in Blue to keep everybody busy while they retooled uh, Emperor's uh, into, uh, I guess it was Kingdom of the Sun, into Emperor's New Groove. So that by the time you finished Rhapsody, you were you were ready to work on that. We got it. So I was an animator on that. I might have not been called Emperor's New Groove until kind of the end. I think yeah. the kingdom in the sun for a little while, but I animated a, I, I really admired Bruce Smith's animation of Kerchak and Tarzan and really wanted to work with him. And he was supervising uh, Pacha, the main character. So I worked with uh, Bruce animating on uh, the Pacha character and some other uh, side characters and other things that came up. I got to do a little bit of Isma, uh, working with the late, great Dale Bear, who I miss so much. And I learned so much even just working with Yeah. Him. You know, I, I, I actually, uh, really feel bad that I never had the opportunity to get him onto our show. Um, and, and it was just devastating when he passed away. Happened quick. I, yeah. 
I miss him and think about him all the time and have a hard time believing. Super, super nice guy. Uh, Dale and I uh, spent a lot of uh, mornings chatting together because he was an early bird like I was. Ah. So so we were always in the building. Like we were always like the the first couple of guys in the building. And and we'd sometimes walk over to the commissary together to grab early to get the salad bar. No, no. To get a breakfast burrito in the morning, you know, like at like six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning we'd go over and get a breakfast burrito <laughs> well yeah what he told me was is he i think i had lunch with him once and he said oh we did it at 11 he said yeah he likes to go to lunch early at 11 because yeah. he's in super early and uh he said yeah no one's really gone over the salad bar yet so <laughs> nobody sneezed on the salad no, bar yeah it's all fresh it was all fresh <laughs> yeah i have wonderful memories of dale i've worked with him several times and uh, miss him as a, as a friend and it's, uh, such a, such a loss, such a huge yeah. loss. So I, yeah. I had a great time on, so yeah, that was a new group was a, a fun show to work on and, you know, uh, people seem to re- remember it well. And, and, uh, and from there you went on to treasure planet and you did John silver, which you were working with Glenn. That was a similar situation where, you know, one of the great things about working at Disney was, you had opportunities. Not everyone had that opportunity, but I was very fortunate to be able to find a way to, to work with some of the best people and your heroes. And, and I thought, wow, I, I really, so I taught, I talked to Ron and John and Glenn and really wanted to animate on silver. I don't want to speak for either Ron and John. I don't know if Musker thought I was quite up to it at that point, but Ron, I think, felt I could do it, and he believed in me because that was a hard, hard character. Yeah, yeah. And Glenn gave me a shot, and it was one of the most exhilarating and challenging uh, two years uh, working with Glenn, animating on Long John Silver. Um and, you know, and, and talk talk a little bit about that because that was a difficult character because it was hand drawn and computer generated. Yes, and uh, every aspect of it was difficult. I mean, the hand drawn portion is we roughed out the computer generated parts, which were then brought in. They brought in our animation into Maya and an image plane, and Eric Daniels would semi roto, semi fix the CG elements, and then they were all printed out together and cleaned up two CG printouts. It was a very laborious process. Uh, but regardless of my part of it doing the hand drawn part, just in itself was very, very hard. And it wasn't towards the end where I really felt like I could, could draw the character. And Glenn really taught me a lot on that. I think that about observation, truth and animation, because some of the first bits that I did, I thought I presented a pretty good first pass of some stuff. And I think work that may have just gotten okayed on other projects I was on. And he said to me, looks okay, but it looks like animation. And, you know, when you're young and you're not really sure what he means like that, you're thinking, what do you mean it looks like animation? Of course it's animation. But I began to put two and two together and realizing that it just kind of looked like, oh, there's the head shake, there's the subtle, there's the the overshoot. It doesn't look like a unique thing that just existed on its own that never happened before. Uh, So, you know, I got into using uh, little bits of live reference. you know, one little bit of interesting thing about Treasure Planet of getting your, and Glenn was all about getting your inspiration from places. I've never told this to anybody. But yeah, one weird bit of inspiration I got from Treasure Planet was, is this, there is a sequence of shots that I did where 
Silver is talking to the pirates about how Jim doesn't mean much to him and, you know, he's just playing soft, you know, and, and then one of the other pirates confronts him and then Silver turns to him and goes, shut your yap and has a big, you know, shut your mouth with a, a big open mouth. And I remember Glenn was saying he was influenced by Robert Shaw from uh, Jaws. And I from Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't have like, we had just videotapes back then, but I put in my Jaws videotape and I remember I, I single frame that I paused that scene where Robert Shaw's eaten by the shark and he, and he just screams in pain and opens his mouth and he has that big open mouth and that, and that crazy tongue shape. And I drew thumbnails of that. And I use that as like my inspiration for that shot. And I think it was little bits of that where, you know, I got from Glenn on that where like go a little bit deeper, look for research. And, and, and sometimes I still fall into that trap where you feel like you got to get something done and you don't go that extra mile. And sometimes that sometimes it pays off because you get it done, but sometimes it sets you back. And Glenn being the master and perfectionist that he was, um, you had to go down that journey. And Glenn was the, the thing I learned about Glenn is that he was so patient and so giving as long as you were all in. Yeah. You know, I may not have been as good as some of the other folks on the unit um, at first. I mean, but I never gave up and I worked with him for two years on that. And it was an experience I'll never forget. Yeah. That I, I, you know, it's, it's so great to hear those kinds of stories because that's really pulling the curtain back, you know, where, where people are getting their inspiration from and they're studying live action and they're always constantly on the lookout for material, whether it's, you know, magazine photographs or, you know, books and reference material like that. Um, uh, and I think that's terrific from, from treasure planet though, you went, uh, did you, did you leave the company after Treasure Planet? Uh, not quite. Not quite. Uh, Treasure Planet came out. Actually, it came out after I left. Uh, I'll try and. It was 2002. It, it was yeah, released. I'll, I'll try and be, yeah. yeah. So at the time, uh, Hendel Butoy was uh, directing the animation uh, on the Disney side for Mickey's Philhar Magic. Right. And they were looking for 2D animators to train and CG to work on it. And myself and two others were picked to do that. And I trained in Maya and I animated in CG on the very first Mickey's Phil incarnation of Mickey's Philhar Magic. Uh, which was for the theme park, which the was park. Down, we're down at Walt Disney World. I know. And I, if, we, if we ever get to it, I, I recently worked on, uh, on its uh, update and overlay, but that's way into the future. <laughs> I, worked, I worked on Mickey's Philhar Magic and uh, was going to go on to Chicken Little. And at the time, uh, you know, I got without I got an off. Eric Goldberg had left the studio, and he was, uh, I think, he was directing where the wild things are at the time. And when that got put on pause, and that eventually was made into a live action film, he went to be the uh, animation director on a very fun but strange movie called Looney Tunes Back in Action. Right. Uh -huh. And uh, I had an offer to go be a supervising animator on that. And it was hand-drawn, and I had kind of gotten my foothold a little bit in CG, but not my foothold, but that's not the right word. I, you know, I was you, gonna, you, were, do, you were doing CG early on. I was doing it, was doing yeah. it but you know what? Um, it, it was just the thing to do. And the movie Looney Tunes Back in Action was not a, not a success, a very strange movie. I, don't, I guess it may be a cult classic to some, 
it was a blast to work on and we worked on it in the Sherman Oaks Galleria. And it right. was also just darned interesting just to leave Disney after uh, eight or nine years and try something else. Yeah. And, um, you know, for probably the next seven years or so, seven or eight years, I worked on all kinds of different things. I did do CG a couple times intermittently. I did go to New Zealand and was there for about eight months. I was an animator on Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Right. Um, which was more of the How, effect. How'd you like living down in New Zealand? It's pretty I beautiful, know. right? Oh, one of the most amazing places on the planet. I tell yeah. anybody that if you are thinking of going there or have that on your travel list, I would consider bumping it up. It's, yeah, uh, I had I, I had the opportunity to go down there uh, with Disney to do a little work on a live stage show. Never ate so much lamb in my life. A beautiful place. There's even just a way <laughs> that the light like touches like the lamb. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful place and it, it's, it's very beautiful so let you because we're 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 running uh time wise uh, i'm just going to run through some movies really quickly uh because you worked on the first spongebob square pants movie now that's that's erroneous that's no? an erroneous imdb Oh, so you shouldn't even be on there, huh? No, I tried to get that removed. I did not work on SpongeBob. Okay, so, so that's, that's what I—that's what I was going off, off of. Okay. Yeah, IMDb. If you're listening, I've actually tried to log on and get that one taken off. Not that I am upset about having worked on SpongeBob, but I did not work on the SpongeBob. Yeah. So, but you did. But you did work on Fat Albert. Yeah, I was the animation supervisor on that on the Warner Brothers side, and that was a bizarre, interesting experience. How to. Eric Goldberg animated on that. Uh, he helped me out on that. That was done in the one of the very, very last, possibly the last vestige of Warner feature animation wow. uh, after Osmosis Jones when they were kind of dissolving. So, yes, I was the animation uh, supervisor on that from the uh, Warner Brothers side, and it was a very interesting project. And you did uh, Pink Panther, I think, titles, right? With with Bob Kurtz, Kurtz and Friends. Bob was on our show not long ago. On that for sure, and, and uh, Curious George. That is erroneous as well. I did not work on Curious. George. Wow, man, you got a lot of extra credits on your IMDb. Well, that should that should be you know this is actually good. Keep reading them off, and then we can straighten we can straighten it out. My, right my gym partner's a monkey. That's another one that is erroneous. A I monkey's tail. Monkey's Tale, I absolutely did work on. I okay. did. That was a as a lead, as a lead animator on that. That was a. Uh, a Chinese theme park, large format project that Eric Goldberg directed. And it was a tremendous amount of work. I did that. Uh, I did that uh, working out of my home. Okay. So I'm just going to rattle off a few we'll keep more. Going. We'll keep going. Yeah. Johnny test. I actually did work on. Okay, Johnny great. Test. We like that. Uh, Tom and Jerry in uh, shiver me whiskers. Yes, not a career highlight, but, <laughs> but that's what that's a job that I took that I got. Okay, so I was on some other show there, I think at the Looney Tunes, some Looney Tunes Christmas special, and I needed another week to make my union coverage because I was yeah. at Disney for the time. And they gave me an extra weeks, a week and a half works on the show to make my hours. But I got to show, a, I animated two scenes. I don't know why we animated them here because they were done overseas, but I got to show them to the late great Iwo Takamoto and Joe Barbera was still around. And I, my cue was outside of his office and I got to hang out with Joe Barbera and spend some time with him. So not a career highlight, but I could tell a whole story about my, even my two or three weeks on that. And that was a really, uh, 
memorable time, but not, 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 not my career highlight, but not, you know, not a, not an animation career highlight, but, but people you met highlight a life highlight and an experience yeah. highlight hearing stories about Bill Titler from Iwo Takamoto was amazing. Wow. And then you did Bah Humbug, a Looney Tunes Christmas. That is actually the project uh, that I was on for a couple of weeks and then went on to the Shiver Me Whiskers. So I worked okay. on that. So that was kind of combined in my uh, my little stint at Warner's with uh, Joe Barbera. And did you work on the replacements? I did not work on the replacements. However, a very good friend of mine uh, was the show was the uh, supervising director on that. Uh, Heather Martinez, but okay. I did not work on it. Okay, so we're we're straightening out your IMDb we're while we're working. Out part of it. Yeah. I, I don't have as much credit to anyone's thought. I think the, we're back. The Simpsons movie and the yeah. Simpsons game. Yes, I was a lead animator on the Simpsons movie. That was a really interesting experience because that role didn't exist at first, and it turned out that not all the film had time to be animated in Korea and a big chunk of it stayed here and I Good. lead and coordinate the animation for the stuff that was actually done in house. So yes, I did. I, I, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed the Simpsons movie. I loved I it. I have a funny story about the Simpsons movie and it was funny because da- David Silverman was trying to, you know, I worked really closely with him on that. And, you know, I think he was trying to do a, a nice thing for me by at the rap party. He introduced me to Jim Brooks and it's a, it, he said, Oh, this is birdie did a lot of work on the movie. He said, you know, Bert, Roberta animated that scene. And when he says animated, meaning actually animated, not just laid out, but that right. scene with Bart's running around the room and he falls, he falls down. Bart actually, I think, stole some liquor and he started drinking and he like passed out drunk. And he said, oh, Bert animated that scene of Bart where he gets all woozy and passes out drunk. And then Jim Brooks says, you know, I just thought that Bart's head hitting the ground could have just been a frame or two faster. <laughs> And David pretended like he was strangling. Like, Why didn't you do it right? I, it was kind of, it was a funny story. Cause I think David was trying to give me a nice plug to Jim Brooks as sort of like a thank you for having done so much work, but also just a reminder of how involved and attentive Jim Brooks actually was on the project. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now well, you, you also worked on the Simpsons TV series I did. And, and, and then you did pops of Liberty. Right. And I, I, I want to put a pin in that for a second because we're, I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But then you went back to Disney to do Princess yeah. and the Frog. Yep. I, Eric, uh, Eric and Ron and John brought me back to Disney in 2008. And I worked um, with Eric uh, animating on Lewis the Alligator. And I'm proud of having worked on that character. It's a great character. Because he's not a main character, but he's in there a fair amount. And if you look at the credits, only there were only only three people animated on him: Eric, myself, and Hyun Min Lee. So it was a very small crew. Yeah, and we kind of felt some real ownership over that character because we got a lot to do and a lot of great stuff to do. I, I think feel, one yeah. other one other animator did a tiny scene of him entering a room, but other than that, the whole character was just done by the three of us. I have to I'll say jump. that yeah. I have to say that I think Lewis stills the show. Yeah, I think he's a great character. A great and you know character. something? I, I, I think we could all agree that in many of the Disney films, uh, secondary characters really are standouts. Oh, yeah. He was a blast. You I know, there's a lot of great standouts. I think Eric might have gotten an Annie Award for supervising Lewis of memory uh, serves. But yeah, that was a fun show. So, so yeah, I, I finished up. I mean, after the movie and the ride, 
I went on to work on a couple episodes of the show before I could start on Princess and the Frog. And I started back at Disney's on Princess and the Frog in 2008. I think it was March 23rd. Uh-huh. And I am still there. Awesome. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's great because you you did Princess and the Frog, Winnie the Pooh, you worked on Wreck-It Ralph, Get a Horse, Frozen, Big Hero 6, Frozen Forever, uh, Zootopia, Moana, Olaf's Frozen Adventure, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Please jump in on any of these that you didn't work on. <laughs> no, no, no. Worked on all of those. Frozen 2, Encanto, Raya, yeah, as, a, as a CG animator. Yeah, so, that's and, awesome. and I, I do want to get to this Pups of Liberty dog cloration of independence. Oh, really quick before I mention Pups, there's a few other interesting projects that I, that I worked on that I'll just say real quick before I do Pups because yeah. uh, uh, they were really unique and interesting and exhilarating experiences. I got to work as the animation supervisor on the Peter Pan attraction for Tokyo Disney. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is opening in Fantasy Springs. So they've announced that. But, uh, but I, so I'm not saying it, so it's been announced, but yes, yeah, I, 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 I was, wor- by the way, I was working on the, uh, the Peter Pan for Shanghai Disneyland, uh, prior to leaving the studio. Oh, wonderful. That one turned yeah. out fantastic. That's yeah. a really good. And I think the creative director on that from the Imagineering side may have been the same person. I probably, probably. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I was the animation soup on Peter Pan and I, uh, they've announced this too, I believe. I believe they've announced it because there's this Topia attraction that mm-hmm. they're building. Well, of course they've announced it. It's they're building it in uh, plain sight. So I did the same role uh, for the uh, Zootopia attraction in uh, Shanghai. And just to go full circle while we did that last year, um, they also folded in a Coco segment in PhilharMagic, which I supervised the Donald animation on. So I got to work on a PhilharMagic new sequence uh, overlay. So I went full circle from PhilharMagic, working on it 20 years and then 20 years later. That's fantastic. Very last project I'm proud of uh, as an animation supervisor. It's on Disney Plus. It's called um, Zootopia Plus. Great. It's five uh, Zootopia shorts totaling about 40 minutes that take place in other parts of the movie that uh, Trent Corey directed with uh, Josie Trinidad. And I worked as an animation supervisor on that. You know, it's all it's CG and I had, sure. a, I had an absolute blast on that. And uh, following that, uh, Str- uh, Strange World. So I think I covered uh, my uh, a fair amount there. All right, let, let me ask you something because you mentioned Strange World. What, what, what happened with Strange World? Why, why, like, you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I just, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like the marketing was terrible. You know, I, I, I never understood what the movie was about from the marketing and and then for it to do so little over Thanksgiving weekend, it's a beautiful that's film. I, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the trailer material and I saw the trailers in the movie theaters a number of times, it's a gorgeous looking movie. Why did, why did, why did it do so poorly? You know, I try not think about it too much. Um, I, I think not to, I really don't know, but I will say that I had a good time working on it with a lot of great people. And to yeah. some degree, I bring that up 
because ultimately that those are really our experiences working on it is the people and how sure. well it does or how well it doesn't do. I've worked on some things that have done very well, but I did not have as good of a time working on and sure. that did not do well that I had. A yeah. time working on. So I, I can say it a nice. I, I, I think, I think part of it has to do with the marketing personally. Well, I, I, I don't think they, they did enough with the marketing and I don't think the marketing was very good. I think I think only time will tell. Maybe maybe in time people will will, will look at back at that film yeah. and, and see, you know, what what how cool the film the film is. But uh, yeah, the it could have been a lot better. But I t- tell you what I do love is Utopia Plus. It is so much fun and and uh, I when I first started streaming that I was like where are we is this like where and no it happens in the middle of the film <laughs> these are all things that happen in the middle and it's it's very fun so kudos to you because utopia plus is uh, amazing little short it's one of the most fun i've had working on a working on a project with a great team that's it's awesome bert, bert let me ask you uh talk a little bit about pups of liberty what what is that all about it, it's spotted through your imdb you've sent me links to uh, uh some of what you've been doing recently uh talk a little bit about that absolutely it was created uh creatively created by my wife interestingly enough um she doesn't she my account of the origin of it is she did a drawing of one of our cats as a pilgrim we called it mayflower cats and we thought oh what if we like went ahead in time and it was dogs that were like founding figures and i think it was called founding father dogs for a while and she boarded an idea that was a film uh, called about cats and dogs uh, and the, reenacting uh, the American Revolution, the beginning of it with the Boston Tea Party. And we made that film uh, sort of on our own uh, to a degree. It actually got nominated for an Annie Award, which is very exciting. And then we were approached uh, by a group that distributes educational materials to schools. And at the time when they had DVDs, they they put it on DVD and sent it out to school and it became somewhat popular in classrooms. And then as a result, uh, we got a small bit of funding to do a sequel called Pups of Liberty, the Dog Coration of Independence, uh, which we uh, did as well. Uh, a lot of great animators helped us out on that. Uh, Dale Bear and Mark Ken were our two main animators on Pups of Liberty 2. Dale Bear animated the Benjamin Franklin character. Uh, we called him Benjamin Franklin and uh, <laughs> Mark uh, animated just about everything else and a lot of other great folks. Uh, so we did that uh, a few years ago and just not too long ago, we got the opportunity to do smaller, short, ver- shorter, uh, short form versions. Of, like, like interstitial type things. Yeah. Like two or three minute versions that are little bite sized yeah. pieces. And we did five that are, um, uh, we did them, uh, I think, during the pandemic, and uh, we are in the process of doing five more. And they're a lot of fun to do. And, uh, you know, we work with Mark Hen on those. And Mark Hen's son, Gregory, uh, he works with my wife as the writer. And um, it's uh, really, really uh, kind of a family operation. My daughter started to help out doing color design and some cleanup on it. Awesome. So it's really a, a, a small project. It's educational. It's very, very different than a lot of stuff that's out there. Sure. It's commercial, but it's something that we feel good about making because it's got a good message and uh, kids. Hey, have- 
see it in school and discover it, maybe it can have a positive impact on their lives. You, you know, something it's those small projects that sometimes are the most meaningful. I mean, I, I felt that way about the Pumbaa and Timon safety smart films that I did uh, with uh, the underwriters laboratories, you know, and, and, and those are still being played on the resort TV channels down uh, at the parks. I know. And you probably, you felt like you made a difference and it's probably yeah. a similar thing just to, small by the seat of your pants, uh, you know, yep. by a, by a budget thing. But so we're, we're, we're Puffs of Liberty is still continuing and, uh, some more will be, uh, some more are being worked on, but yeah, the first five are, are out there on YouTube right now. And I just do a search for Puffs of Liberty if you want to check it out. And that is, uh, that's that project. And we'll, we'll put the link, uh, for, for Pups of Liberty, uh, the YouTube link, uh, in the show notes for, for our audience to listen to, Bert, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this was a really great conversation. I'm really, I really enjoyed hearing your stories. So the audience, (laughs) studio audience loved it. (laughs) Well, Thank you. I love your podcast and it's an honor to be on it. And um, just to be a part of this great thing, I listen to them all the time and, you know, thank you for having me on. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the stories. Well, you know something, thanks for being on and do me a favor. The next time you talk to Dave masters, I'd love to get Dave on the show. Oh boy. You might have to do a part two and a part three. If you think well, that, if you think I can talk, he can go on too. He's, yeah, uh, no, I, I think that, I think it would be great Dave, though. I, I really do think it would be great. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, see if you can uh, connect the two of us. Cause oh, I'd love yeah. to book them. Honestly, we could have done a part two with you too, because we just steamrolled through your second stint with Disney and we yeah. have so much more we can talk about, but, uh, yeah, I want to, to be happy to, but yeah, Dave master. Yeah. I had a lot of, Oh yeah. He was at a lot of big events. Grim Natwick's 100th. I remember when yeah. he was a lot of, a lot of history. Anyway, I just want to thank you guys again. It was a lot of fun. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much, uh, Bert. And we will have you back on the show at some point in the future. You know where to find me, Dave. Skull Rock Podcast. To infinity and beyond. Exploring the outer reaches of the Disney galaxy. Oh, wow. You flew magnificently. Bert Klein, once again, great interview, Dave. Yeah, no, I love Bert. He's a terrific artist, uh, terrific animator. He's producing and directing. I mean, uh, you know, he's just another one of the good guys in the industry. 100%. And uh, look forward to getting Bert back on the show at some point. I mean, once again, there's so much ground to cover with any one of our guests. and, And we look forward to having him back on the show. And having said that, once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, please feel free to subscribe to the show. You know, there's so many people out there that haven't subscribed, but we want you to subscribe on every one of the platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Anchor.fm. We're on there and uh, you can leave us those five star reviews as well. Give us those thumbs up. We appreciate it. And you can write us those reviews and feedback. We'd love to read them on an upcoming show right here on Skull Rock Podcast. And send us those emails, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, real quick, once again, a shout out to our friends at Sorcerer Radio for celebrating 22 years of being on the air. Thank you for having Skull Rock Podcast be part of the programs there and uh, your podcast network. And uh, once again, you can find me there on the Dining at Disney Podcast, a sister of this show. 
So thank you so much, Dave. Final word. Final word. Well, you know, if you want to read some more about animation, uh, about Disney history, go to davidbosser.com. If you're interested in my books, they're available at your favorite online retailer or local independent bookstore. Uh, Or you can go to theoldmillpress.com to get some of them. Uh, And with that, I would say... Before that, Dave, you're also dining at Disney this week as well. Oh, I, I am a guest on Dining at Disney. That's right. So tune into that. You can find out about some of my favorite places to eat <laughs> at the Disney parks. There you go. I love it. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed that. It was great to, to have you and the wife there together again. That was awesome. Hey, uh, I will say um, uh, be careful out there. The weather is all over the place across the country, unless, of course, you're in the southeast where it's nice and toasty warm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, uh, go out and have a fantastic week. We'll see you back here uh, next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com